Heavenly Father, we've uh, just sung that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus and his blood and his righteousness. Lord, as we come to your word this morning, remind us powerfully and deeply of the power of your saving gospel, both in our lives and in the world and the community around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Asbury University, uh, you might have heard of it in the past week, is a private Christian university in the state of Kentucky in the USA. And over the past week, uh, this university has made the news for an unusual phenomenon. The Washington Post reports this. On February 8th, students at Asbury University gathered for their bi-weekly chapel service in the 1,500-seat Hughes Auditorium. They sang, they listened to a sermon, they prayed, and nearly a week later, many of them are still there. News of the revival has also drawn students and other visitors to the campus to take part in their ongoing prayer and worship. Now, revival is a debated term. Uh, There's some unhelpful aspects of it. But in its most helpful definition, uh, it's a work of God stirring in people's hearts as scriptures are taught faithfully, as Christ is held out, and it leads to an unusual but spectacular response. And that's felt not just only in the gathering during that one-hour time of the service, but it keeps going, it keeps going, in the whole community around them gets into it. And while it's unsure, uh, 10, 11 days into what's happening here in this university and not knowing all the details of how it happened, whether we'd call this a revival or not, as we open up Acts 18 and 19, as the gospel reaches this city called Ephesus, we see some, what some might call a revival. Or you might call it a spiritual awakening. But we really see, whatever word you use, the gospel moving powerfully, affecting everyone and changing everything in this city. Like Corinth last week, uh, Ephesus is another big city. It's the capital of the Roman province of Asia. It boasted, if you have a look on the screen, a stunning harbour port, a world-famous temple, and a large theatre that the remains of both the theatre and the temple are still there to be found in Ephesus today. Yet this city, this huge metropolis, as the gospel comes to town, as the simple and clear message of life in Jesus gets proclaimed, what happens in this city is simply revolutionary. It turns this big pagan city upside down. Uh, Today's a huge section, so again, we're going to look at it from a bird's eye view, and we're going to see in these passages five scenes, five aspects, five different people or groups of people uh, in Ephesus where in different ways the gospel changes everything. We start in chapter 18, verse 24, If you remember last week, or cheat and look back, great to have your Bibles open. Paul, he's left Corinth, he passed by Ephesus, he dropped uh, his buddies, Priscilla and Aquila, off. 
Then he continued his journeys. He promised to return. Well, during this time, uh, Luke, the author of Acts, he tells us what's happening in Ephesus. And he introduces us to a guy who we hear in other parts of the New Testament named Apollos. Verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. Now, Alexandria was a center for education and philosophy around that time. It had a reputation kind of like when you hear Harvard or Oxford, that kind of reputation. And because Alexandria was this sort of city, parts of the teachings of Jesus would have made its way to Alexandria. And Apollos, he grew up there. He was a great speaker. He knew scriptures. He'd heard some of the teachings of Jesus, but obviously not all of them, because he only knew the baptism of John. And there's a bit of debate about what that phrase means. It's most likely not saying that Apollos hadn't received the Holy Spirit. It could be saying that Apollos didn't know about the outpouring of the Spirit in Acts 2, even though he had the Spirit, but I don't think that's likely. It's probably saying that in the teachings of Jesus that Apollos picked up while in Alexandria, he was proclaiming Jesus, but his call to Jesus was something like this. Trust in Jesus, do this by being baptized, and do this by being baptized the way that John the Baptist taught us. Verse 26 keeps going. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him outside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. You see, Priscilla, Aquila, Paul dropped him off, remember? They hear Apollos teach. They're probably happy to hear Jesus being proclaimed by this new guy, but they notice a bit of an error. So they take Apollos aside and explain to him the fullness of the good news of Jesus. Imagine being Apollos. It could go one or two ways. It could go firstly by rejecting a gospel critique, and that could have ended badly for everyone or by welcoming a gospel critique, which clarifies and helps the spread of Jesus. And verse 28 implies that Apollos received this with gladness. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. That's Corinth. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Apollos, he's welcomed into Paul's missionary band and he's sent to Corinth, that's in the region of Achaia, and he continues to proclaim Jesus. And that's why we hear about Apollos in the letter to the Corinthians. You see, here we see the first and rather passing point uh, that the gospel changes everything, where in Apollos, we see Priscilla and Aquila correct or clarify 
the message of the gospel, and the result is the gospel message is clarified and corrected. And this is a reminder for us today while passing that a clear and accurate gospel message is so important for the gospel changing everything. And I think with Apollos' example, we need to be open ourselves to clarifying the gospel message in ourselves, in others, and in the ministry of the church, and even welcoming this as we submit to the good news that God has given in his word. Because if we want to be clear, if we want to be faithful to God's work of salvation, as we share the good news of life in Jesus to the world around us, a big shot teacher like Apollos, he was humble enough. He had his eyes fixed on the glory of Jesus enough to receive this gospel clarification. Are you? Am I humble enough? Are we humble enough? If someone came to you this morning, you're a believer, and said, I love you, you're my brother and sister in Christ, but I think you're getting this part of the gospel wrong. And then they proceed to lovingly clarify the gospel. Would you humbly welcome this discussion? Or would you shut it down? You see, the first scene here as the gospel begins to change everything in Ephesus. We see that in Apollos, the gospel message is clarified. Well, as we keep going, the, move, the scene moves back to Paul. Paul, he reaches Ephesus. He finds this group of people who were even further back than Apollos in knowing about Jesus. They look like disciples of Jesus, but they hadn't even heard of the Holy Spirit. If you keep following in chapter 19, verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. You see, these 12 guys, they were baptized in the John the Baptist baptism. They probably heard about Jesus, the one that John the Baptist pointed to, but they didn't know that the Holy Spirit existed. So they didn't know the events of Acts chapter 2. They're probably Gentiles because they didn't even know the promises of the Spirit from the Old Testament. And it's possible that while they knew bits about Jesus, they didn't really know much about the events of the cross of Christ and his death and resurrection either. Either way, they had a deficient gospel. They knew John's baptism, but not who it pointed to. They were disciples, but it's not clear who they are disciples of. So Paul, he fills them in in verse 4. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. 
On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. See, after Paul explains Jesus to these guys, it's implied that they believe, they're baptized, the Spirit comes on them, at the, la- the hand laying here. I think that if there's any special significance, it's about welcoming them into the community of believers. And as we see in some, but not in every work of the Spirit in Acts, we see this visual confirmation of God's work by His Spirit as people respond to the good news of life in Jesus. You see, as the gospel message hits Ephesus, it changes everything for these 12 disciples. For people who had some, but not all, elements of the gospel and the good news of Jesus as it's declared, it completes the story for these guys. For those who know a bit about Jesus, who are curious about Jesus, but who have a somewhat deficient or incomplete version of Jesus. And you know, almost everyone, I reckon, in our city, in our community, has some sort of story of Jesus. Some are more curious, some are less curious, some have parts of gospel truth, and others have warped parts of gospel truth. And as believers share the gospel message, just as we see Paul did to these 12 disciples, people, they receive a complete message of the good news of Jesus. For some, curiosities are raised. For others, curiosities are met. For some, more of the gospel message is understood. And for others, distorted and warped truths are undone. You see, the gospel does work. The gospel changes everything. The gospel's still working, even if we're not seeing revivals and conversions. And this should encourage us in continuing to keep going in sharing the good news of life in Jesus. Who knows how God is working as you share Jesus to those around you. Our second scene today in the Disciples of John, we see that as part of the gospel changing everything, sharing the gospel, sharing that simple message of salvation, it results in a complete understanding of the gospel message as it's proclaimed. So we keep going, verse 8 to 10, as a summary of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. And I've just got one quick passing point here, verse 8. As he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, 
both Jews and Greeks. Paul, he does his usual thing we've seen a couple times already. He starts in the synagogue. After there's opposition, he moves on. And here he sets up in what's probably what we would call a community hall. And Luke's summary here is the result of constantly, faithfully, repeatedly holding out the message of life in Jesus over these two years. All the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. You see, this is our third thing as the gospel shows up and changes everything. It's inevitable. It's inevitable when the gospel shows up, when the gospel is shared, that the gospel is made known to all. People change from not knowing Jesus at all to having heard the good news of life in Jesus. We see it through Paul and the other disciples uh, here in Ephesus, and this is what I think we want to see. This is what I think we ought to see in our community today as we serve King Jesus in our community, in our workplaces, in our lives, and as we share the good news of life only found in Jesus to those we come across around us. Let me ask you this morning, is this the reality you want to see? All the residents in our local community having heard the good news of life in Jesus. Is this a reality that excites you, that burdens you, that spurs you on? And does your witness show this? Or does your fear or your other lesser priorities stop this from happening in your life? Paul obviously really wanted all in Ephesus to be presented with the gospel message. And I wonder if we really want this today. I wonder if you really want this today. If we really yearn for this picture of gospel change in our world. Or if we really want to live our lives, mind our own business, and just find ourselves saved on the last day. You see, the gospel changes everything. And it looks like the gospel being made known to all. Well, as we keep going, a few years ago, I made, um, made friends with a group of believers. Uh, they were in bikey gangs in their past lives. They were involved in real crime and drugs. And as they accepted the good news of life in Jesus, they experienced real visible change real, visible repentance. We saw in them a confession of their rejection of God, but we also saw in them a day-to-day -day saying no to self, saying no to the world, and saying no to their former life without God, and saying yes day by day, moment by moment to living God's ways and living under his good rule. These guys were all big, buff, 
fellas bigger than Spence, buffer than Spence. They still wore bikey clothes, but they, like Spence, were lovely and godly guys. <laughs> the gospel changed everything. And for these bikies, it was very stark seeing people who were obviously far from God. They were so far from God to seeing them day by day, action by action, bowing their knees to King Jesus. And that's what we see in the next few verses here. Because as the gospel changes everything, we see real repentance. Real repentance as people keep bowing the knee to King Jesus. Verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over all those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man who, in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. There's a lot of different things happening here uh, that try to steal our focus. Paul's ministry, powerful like Jesus, even a handkerchief, and they're healed. Magicians trying to use the name of Jesus as part of their magic spells and the evil spirit's response and uh, the guys running out naked and wounded. But I think the crux of the story here is the end result we see next. You see, the story started with a failed attempt to use the name of Jesus, but the story ends with the power and authority of the name of Jesus. Verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. It was praised. Also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. You see, what happens here is a consequence of the gospel changing everything. The name of Jesus is praised and believers. Foles of Jesus, after seeing this play out, they were moved to repentance. They were so moved to repentance, confessing their worldly magical practices, naming them, 
naming them in public, and bringing their books together. And we're not talking about $20 Kurong books, but family magic and cultish books passed down generation after generation after generation. It totaled $10 million in today's currency, burning all these books up in public. Generational sins coming to an end, satanic evil practices gone. Here we see as part of the gospel changing everything, real repentance, real no to sin and yes to Jesus. And this real repentance, this public spectacle of gospel repentance, it resulted, if you see in the end, in increased gospel work and more people saved as the gospel went forth. And this is what the gospel does as it comes to town, as it's declared, shared, heard, and heeded. It results in real repentance. And the repentance starts in us. It was believers who did this. If you hold on to the gospel, being refreshed and reminded of the gospel leads to real repentance. When's the last time you experienced real repentance? When you were so overwhelmed with the gospel, with Jesus being praised in your life, that you said no to something, to a habit, to a rhythm, to a pattern, destroying a deep-seated idol in your heart, ending a worldly habit, exposing a heart and behavior that doesn't honor God, killing sin in your life, and saying yes to Jesus, gladly living and aligning yourself under his good rule, and bowing the knee to him day by day. And the gospel brings real repentance in our community too. As people come to Jesus, as they say, imagine if the gospel took hold of us and our community so much that there was real, visible, costly repentance on display in our lives, in our church, to our community as the name of Jesus is lifted high. You see, the gospel changes everything and it results in a real repentance in people's lives in our world. Well, as we come to the last section, it's pretty lengthy, so keep, keep your Bibles open as we skim through it. Uh, as I read it in the beginning of this week, it actually reminded me a lot of a thing we do in Brisbane whether it's a sporting event, a grand final, state of origin, or maybe the Ed Sheeran concerts in the last two nights. Sports fans, they meet for a beer on Caxton Street in a pub. And as they walk down Caxton Street towards Suncorp Stadium before a game, they do this, they get into Suncorp Stadium and they yell, they scream proudly for their pride and their team whether it be Brisbane, Queensland, Australia, 
New Zealand for some, or singing Ed Sheeran for three hours. Well, in Ephesus, the Christian movement, sometimes called the way, it was causing such an uproar in the city. And it got to a point, verse 24, where a guy named Demetrius, a silver worker who made silver souvenirs, uh, shrines of Artemis, their goddess of the city, uh, he gathered what we would call the Silver Workers' Tradies' Union. Verse 25, these he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there's danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. You see, Christianity was causing such a stir, it was changing everything in Ephesus that these silver souvenir makers, they were worried about their decline in sales and income because more Christians meant less temple visitors resulting in less dollars. And they were worried that the great city of Ephesus with its magnificent temple and the great goddess would become nothing. So the Silver Workers Traders Union, uh, they do what they do best, they protest. They get on the street, they build up a crowd, they build an uproar, and they beeline their way to the city theater, the one in Ephesus that fits 25,000 people. Not only this, but they somehow grab Gaius and Aristarchus, two of Paul's missionary friends, and while Paul, he wanted to join the fuss, the disciples and some of the regional rulers, these Asiarch guys, they urged him not to go. Verse 32, it sounds like the protest turns into a special city meeting. Fun fact, the word assembly here is the same word used for church, but used in a secular way. But this meeting, it had no order. People had no idea what was happening. It's possible that some of the Ephesians wanted to hear from the Jews too, because at that time, Jews and Christians were looked to as similar. But when their appointed leader tried to speak, Alexander, the crowd got a bit more rowdy. They sound a bit like Aussies, don't they? They shouted out for two hours, For the pride of the city, great is the Artemis of the Ephesians. The gospel really does turn things upside down when it comes to town. And the section ends with the town clerk, a leader of the city, calming the meeting down with a carefully crafted speech, affirming the pride of Ephesus, but also affirming a sense of tolerance and peace because any disturbance of peace would have attracted the eye of Rome, which was a never 
which was never a good thing in that time. But what we see here is the gospel changing everything, turning a city upside down, causing a stir, and really, ultimately, confronting the idols of the people. That's what the gospel does. Artemis, money, national pride. And as the gospel changes everything today, it does the same work in our lives and in our cities today. The gospel exposes the world's idols. It does this for you individually. From the first time you hear the gospel message to the thousandth time exposing the idols in your heart. And the gospel does this in our community, just like we see here in Ephesus, as the gospel is shared, exposing the deep-seated idols in our society, whether it be success, security, comfortability, being loved, family, materials, wealth, pleasure, on and on, anything we put above God. What are the idols of our society? Well, it's easy to say, harder to own for ourselves. Tim Keller has a great book called Counterfeit Gods, written to a more general audience, a Western audience. But I think today that there are two big idols that the gospel exposes in Brisbane, Australia, in us, in our community, as the good news of life in Jesus is shared. And the first one, you've heard it a bit, it's called selfism. Me. Self is king. You do you. You determine your own identity. And the second idol is rest and recreation. It's the Aussie lifestyle, feet up, looking for the next adventure. And both of these we can see in our churches too. We have pastors preaching, you do you, find yourself, have your best life now. And isn't it sad that regular church attendance is classified as once a month? let alone between Sundays. What an indictment on our generation of Christians. You see, as the good news of life in Jesus is shared, as the gospel changes everything, it exposes our hearts, it exposes our idols, and exposes the idols of our community. And it's going to cause an uproar it's going to cause an uproar in us. It's going to cause an uproar in our world. And we want to see this happen. We want to see idols upended and placed under the lordship of Jesus as the gospel spreads in our community. In 1904, Wales experienced a great awakening of God. 
It began in local churches as people prayed, as the gospel was held out and shared. And just like in Ephesus, as we saw this morning, during the years of 1904 and 1905, the gospel changed everything in Wales. It's said that 100,000 people came to Christ and joined churches in membership in those two years. Judges had no cases to try. Policemen, they had no work. They became choir quartet singers for churches. Drunkenness was cut in half. Pubs were declaring bankruptcy. Miners stopped swearing. Illegitimate birth rates dropped. You see, the gospel really changes everything. When the gospel message, when Jesus and his saving message moves in our community, people are saved. Lives are changed. A community is upended. The clear and complete message of Jesus spreads. Confession and repentance happen and idols are exposed. The simple yet revolutionary message of Jesus. It turns ourselves, our churches, and our communities upside down. We see this in Ephesus. But if it's not happening, maybe it's part of God's mysterious work in his sovereign time, but it's worth asking yourself, is the gospel taking hold of you? Is the good news of life found in Jesus alone, that in Christ your sins are forgiven and you look forward to eternal life, is that good news taking hold of you? Coincidentally, Jesus speaks these words in Revelation to the church of Ephesus. Words that I think are worth us reflecting on today. Jesus says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from when, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. The gospel changes everything. But is the gospel taking hold of you? As we finish off, let me challenge you this morning. Find your love for Jesus. If you feel you need to, repent of your lack of love for Jesus. And let that love for Jesus overflow into a boldness to see the gospel take hold of you and overflow to the community and the city around us. The gospel changes everything. The good news that Jesus is God's king, that through the cross, Jesus has made a right way between us to God. This good news shared, it shakes and stirs, it turns our communities upside down. You see, this is the good news that our world that's lost without Jesus needs to hear. Would you pray that the gospel would work this way in our lives 
and in our community for the glory of Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, your good news of life in Jesus changes everything. It turns lives and communities and cultures upside down as people bow their knee to King Jesus. Father God, please do this gospel-changing work in our lives. And please work the gospel in our community, in Upper Mount Gravatt and Brisbane and beyond. We ask that as the gospel goes forth, that you'll save souls, change lives, bring repentance, break idols. Let your word spread and prevail mightily. We ask all this for the glory of Jesus. Amen.